Should I tell you the story of how I found out that you were in Iceland? Yeah, sure, go so for it. So I started listening to your podcast three, three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Anyway, I started listening to it and I was really impressed by it. It was so how you were able to get people to connect Star Trek and real world science, sometimes just enjoying Star Trek and sometimes just enjoying the real world science and then combining like the binary stars and, and discovery and get people to discuss about that, uh, hot Jupiters, everything. So I was really impressed by it. And then I saw an interview with an Icelandic scientist about this conference that you're on. And I thought, is it possible that he might be here? Michael might be here? So I thought I'll go to Twitter and I'll see if I find him. And I found you on Twitter and started following you. And you had just posted something about this conference that I saw this interview in. So I sent the message to you in Iceland and here we are. Mike Wong, Strange New Worlds, welcome back. All right, so yeah, I was in Iceland this past summer at the Extreme Solar Systems Conference, which is like a big exoplanet-themed conference. And while scientists are at conferences, they love to tweet. People are always tweeting, mainly, I think, to increase visibility, like everybody else at that conference who is also on Twitter is following the conference hashtag. So you can sort of say, hey, I'm here too. I've got cool science to share. You've got cool science to teach me. And we're all going to have a blast. I know some people who also tweet just for like note taking purposes. You know, if they hear something amazing that blows their mind, if they just learn something new or there's a really cool graph that is shown, they snap a picture of it, they post it on Twitter, and all of a sudden at the end of the conference, you've basically got your cheat sheet of cool things that you've learned at that conference through tweets. And also, at big conferences where there are parallel sessions, people are often tweeting amazing scientific nuggets from the room two doors down the hall that you wish you could be in, but you need to be in this other room because the talks here relate directly to your research, and you can sort of watch this conference feed flow by on your newsfeed and get those scientific nuggets as well, and then contribute your own to this growing sphere of knowledge and facts by tweeting the cool results from the session that you're in. Anyway, while I was at the Extreme Solar Systems Conference, I tweeted something. I don't even remember what I tweeted. I just tweeted something cool that I learned or heard at that conference. And all of a sudden, I got a message in my inbox from some random guy in Iceland asking, was I actually in Iceland? And did I have time to meet up? And I was like, what? Like... Why does a person in Iceland who is not associated with this conference care that I'm in Iceland? And so you do what you do on the internet. You click on their profile and you look at their bio, you stalk them a little bit, and you realize, oh, he's a Trekkie. He must listen to my podcast. This is so cool. I have a fan in Iceland. And his name, well... Maybe I should let him say his name. So my full name is Guðmundur Haukur Guðmundsson. Okay, slower. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to hear me trying to say that. So it's Hawker. Haukur, yeah. Okay, oh dear. It's, it's the closest to that you can get probably. Okay, wait, so say it again. Haukur. Oh dear. Haukur? Uh, yeah. Uh. Anyway, Hawker asked me if I wanted to meet up. 
And absolutely I did. I mean, I would love to meet somebody who's a Trekkie from Iceland. And also, I was spending all this time with scientists during the day. It would be cool to hang out with somebody else in the evening. So I said, yeah, let's go get dinner. So after the conference ended that day, I walked into downtown Reykjavik, met him at this amazing restaurant that cooked this beautiful, delicious fish stew. The Icelandic people, oh my goodness, they know how to make fish stew. This was like the best fish stew I have ever had. Anyway, as I got to talking with him, I realized this guy is really cool. And also, I didn't escape science at all, because it turns out he's a scientist. Go figure. Hawker is a physical therapist in Iceland who practices physical therapy, teaches it, and also studies exercise oncology. And I'll let him tell you about that in just a bit. But when I realized that he actually does amazing science and is a Trekkie, I said, why don't we record an episode of Strange New Worlds right here? Well, not in that busy restaurant that was serving that delicious fish stew, but we decided, let's go to a cafe, somewhere nice and quiet. We went to the second story of a bookstore, ordered some cakes, and sat down to record an episode in which he describes his field of study, how Star Trek inspired him to go into his work, how he's part of a grassroots fandom movement in Iceland, and on and on and on. It's, it's, it's actually one of my favorite conversations because it's kind of free-flowing. Like, I didn't have a plan going into this. I didn't know him beforehand. I didn't read his papers to try to get to know his research and think up really clever questions to ask him. I just met this guy, and you're going to meet him too, and it's going to be amazing. So, without further ado... Hawker Goodmanson. Gosh, I hope I said that right. Can you tell me a little bit about how you discovered Star Trek? Okay. And how Star Trek has influenced your life, in particular your decision to become a physiotherapist. Yeah, so I was walking by the television when I was a teenager, I think around 14, and they were showing the emissary for the first time in a... and I stand television. The first episode yes, of Space Nine. Yes, of Nine. And, and Kaiopaka resembled my recently deceased grandmother. Slightly. Just there was something about her that looked like my grandmother. And I found it interesting. She had died maybe two years before or something. So I thought I, I had looked into what was going on on the TV. And it looked both mystical and scientific at the same time. And I was really into mystical things at the, at the time. And also into science fiction. So I thought, why not just sit down and, and see what's going on? And after that, during the seven years they were running, I missed one episode. So I made sure every Saturday or Sunday to sit down and watch an episode of Star Trek when it, when it was on. And also, it, when, when they had Voyager come on, uh, they would do these series. I don't know how they did it in the States, but they would do series. Like, they would finish Deep Space Nine, and then they would start showing Voyager. Then... There was would be a hiatus for some time, then Deep Space Nine again, then Voyager again. So they would have few months of Deep Space Nine, few months of Voyager, and some break. And it was just and the highlight of my teenage years was the weekend when they changed it from Saturday to Sundays on their schedule. So one weekend we had one episode on Saturday and the other one on Sunday because it was changing the schedule. So we had two episodes on the same weekend, and that was just my absolute highlight as a kid. That's great. So that's how I got into D 
Deep Space Nine or Star Trek in general, but I started with Deep Space Nine and for the first few years and then Voyager. And then I realized I had to take it very seriously and, and watched all of The Next Generation. I actually had, there is a store here in Iceland, I lived in the countryside and I had them ship um, VHS tapes to my town and I would watch it over the weekends and then ship them back after wow. the weekends. And I did it with my friend there. And and then I would, you know, use every free time I could have, like wake up a little bit earlier before going to school to watch that episode to make, make sure I would be able to see everything. Mm -hmm. This is very foreign to the people who are growing up now. Yes. With streaming and <laughs> yeah. Netflix and everything. the internet. Yeah. We had to use VHS tapes. I remember yes. recording on VHS tapes, on blank tapes, yes. Star Trek episodes that I loved, yeah. that I knew we're coming on on a rerun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for instance, the, like I said, the highlight of my teenage years was when we had two episodes in the same weekend. The worst moment in my teenage years, not the worst, but really memorable is when my mom forgot to record a Deep Space Nine episode for me when I was going, we had, my parents have horses and I was going to the stable to clean stables during the same time as they were showing this episode and they wouldn't let me off to see it. So my mom promised to record it, but she recorded a different channel, so I didn't get the episode. And I didn't see it until I was, yeah, I would say 15 years later. I, wow. I, I forgot that I never actually saw that episode, and I was doing my master's degree, and I had Deep Space Nine running in the background, then Voyager and Enterprise, everything running in the background, and then all of a sudden I started noticing something I'd never seen before. And that was the episode, if you, have you seen all of Deep Space Nine? Mm -hmm. So when uh, Bashir went to Romulus on the conference, and I really love Romulans, and I really like, of course, like the Intrepid class starship, they were traveling on like Voyager. And I was like, I would have remembered this if I'd seen it before. So I would, I, that moment I stopped studying for a while, sat down and rewatched it, or watched that episode for the first time. And it was like finding a gem, or like a gold mine or something. Mm-hmm. And you're a, you're a physical therapist now, yes. and so was that inspired by a certain part of Star Trek? I would say yes. I would say I really, I was always inspired by, by the characters in Deep Space Nine to begin with, because that's how I got into it. I really liked the science aspect of Jadzia when she was doing things for, mainly for Cisco to study. And also I really liked how Bashir was helpful with his medical insights. So I really, when I saw that two of them working, I, I, I realized I wanted to be a scientist in some way. And also then when I saw Voyager and Janeway, and she was a scientist who became like a leader, I thought it was really inspiring to see that you were able to do both. So it's probably later led me into management and, and not only doing uh, work myself, so I'm also doing management and mm -hmm. leadership work. and. And, but my main thing is to do research, so I'm going into that further. Wonderful. I often end my Science of Star Trek talks when I give a public lecture somewhere mm. about science and Star Trek with Captain Janeway and her mm. story. Because for a general audience, you know, there may be a lot of people in the audience who have a hard time relating to one of the more alien characters on Star Trek. Mm. Um, and often the science officers are... Aliens, Alien. right? Yeah. yeah. So you have Spock, who's half Vulcan, and you have 
you know, Saru, for instance, on Star mm -hmm. Trek Discovery. And, you know, for people who often see themselves as perhaps different or mm -hmm. separate from the quote-unquote norm, yeah. you know, those are really engaging characters to yeah, identify with. Exactly. But for a general audience, there may be somebody who's wondering, wait, why are all the science officers on Star Trek really weird? Yeah. And I remind them, there's also Captain Janeway, yes. who's a plain old human, who grew mm. up in... Um, Iowa, I think. Mm -hmm. it was, no, no, that's Kirk. Um, Kirk. It was uh, Indiana. Indiana, yes. yes. Um, and you know, she loves drinking coffee. And yeah, Janeway is you know, mm -hmm. very, very human and very yes. relatable for many people. Yes. So Iceland mm -hmm. is a very special country. I have really enjoyed my time here. This is my second trip to Iceland. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful place with very friendly and welcoming people. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, you can take credit for yes. all of that. Yes. <laughs> we used to be very cold and, and, and closed people not so long ago. Really? Yeah, we were known for being really cold and, and distant and unwelcoming. We would be maybe a little bit friendly, like if you would meet a person in a small town in the countryside. But general Icelanders would be, if you would move here, people would feel really, really lonely. Interesting. Um, wow, it's, that's hard to imagine yeah. now because, well, I've only visited Iceland this year and three years ago, so very mm. recently, and you know, my experiences have been always so positive and warm, and people mm. you know, open up, it seems like they just open up their lives and their houses to you. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so you've grown up in Iceland, yes. and, um, and, and you grew up in a small town. In the south, yeah. Yeah. About one hour from Reykjavik, which doesn't... For an American, probably is very close to Reykjavik, mm -hmm. but for someone living in this small country, it felt like a huge distance. And what was it like growing up as a Star Trek fan in Iceland? Is there a big following? Did you connect with a lot of people over Star Trek, or was it hard I, to find somebody? Well, um, you know, when I had been watching Star Trek for a few years, the internet became a thing. That's something younger generations also don't remember. And there was a really popular chat room here in Iceland, chat channel called the IRC, Irk, did you have it also? I don't recognize that. Anyway, it used to be a really big thing in Iceland and they had, you were able to start discussion groups on almost everything that you wanted. And through that I met some people that were into Star Trek and found out that there was a small group of people of Starfleet International here in Iceland. So I connected with them and we became really nice, big, closed group of friends that would hang out almost every weekend for many, many years. And we would be doing things every month, several times a month. We would do some crazy fun things, help out with charities, or we would have parties where we would cook Star Trek-like dishes mm -hmm. and everything, and watch Star Trek, of course. And then when movies came out, we would do something related to that. So we really connected. We all stayed in touch to some extent. So we're all friends, some still closer than others. And some of my dearest friends are from that group today. But now there, I think there is a group of people doing some kind, but I'm not really sure how active they are. I think they're meeting regularly, but it's, it's a different group and I think different focus than what we had. Mm -hmm. That's really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I've never been a part of an official Star Trek fan club or one no. of the Starfleets out there. I guess mainly because I had a bunch of close friends 
that I grew up with who also liked Star Trek, and I, mm. I met friends in grad school who were, you know, big Trekkies as well. Mm. Um, but I've always admired how those organizations are really engaged with charity and yes. activities, like you said. Yeah. And I've also been to a lot of Star Trek conventions, but only in the United States. Yeah. And you've been to one of the biggest conventions in the world, if not the biggest. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that's like. So, yeah, I went to Destination Star Trek Birmingham last year, 2018, and that was my first real convention that I went to. I actually went to a small convention in, in Sweden when I was a teenager, going there for a week course, and I saw there was a small convention in, the, in a completely different part of Sweden, and I went there and for the first time saw people wearing costumes and makeup, but we just the only thing we did there was watching some episodes together and then everyone left. But Destination Star Trek Birmingham was absolutely... Uh, amazing. My family, they've mentioned that when they saw the pictures from this, they've never seen me so happy. I'm like, I'm smiling so... I was just smiling all the time. And I was having fun the entire time and meeting up with the cast and the crew of all these shows and to see how sincerely generous and nice these people actually are was... I, I, I wouldn't say life-changing, but it was really, really touching. Because some people say, like, don't meet your heroes. Or, Do you have your... Uh, uh, yep, that, you that's saying, a saying like yeah, that, yeah. Don't meet your heroes or something like that. It's absolutely not true when it comes to the Star Trek cast and crew, I would say. It's, it's the opposite. They are so engaging, sincere, generous, and just wonderful. When Star Trek turned 50 a few years ago, mm -hmm. you were a big part of, I would say, a grassroots movement to get a big Star Trek kind of event here yes. in Iceland. So what we did, or there was, I think it was after the, the premiere of Into Darkness, that someone, or actually like one big Star Trek fan in Iceland who owns the biggest geek shop in Iceland, he said something, I would love for someone to make a celebration for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, but um, if someone is interested, like he said to the audience, just let me know if you want to do anything about it. And I assumed that he was going to do something about it. And then I reached out to him some weeks later and said, so what's going to happen for the 50th anniversary? And he said, well, I have nothing planned. I was just hoping someone would do something. So and he said, are you, are you interested? Do you have something in mind? And I said, absolutely, we should celebrate. So we talked to a local theater here and they decided to close down their programs, all of their screenings of all the films they had for that Saturday night, which is like a big night for them, of course. And they changed it almost like into a Star Trek theme park where everything was Star Trek related. And we got, for a small community like this, done with no fundings. Um, I mean, there were, of course, for instance, someone would buy like a big chocolate cake with Star Trek decorations on it, mm -hmm. something like that. But there was no profit made out, out of this day. It was just for the fun of it. And we had 150 people showing up and we had things going on in all of the theaters or in all of the halls they have, all kinds of quizzes, games, cosplaying, and people had so much fun. And I was really happy to see how many people showed up because it was a really risky thing to do. Then afterwards I said, if, if I would like to repeat this, I should definitely reach out to them again. And because of that, they actually got the permission to show the Spock documentary a few weeks later, just because I told them it might be an interesting thing for them to show so I helped them get the license for it, and I showed it, yeah. That's fantastic. It really hammers home the point that Star Trek is really 
driven by the fans yes. to a large part. You know, we hear stories about the letter writing campaign that mm. brought the original series With back. Joe and yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. And, and that tradition just continues to today yes. through people like you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't like to compare it to that, but it's, it's, yeah, but through everything that we're doing as fans to engage each other, I think it's really important. So let's talk about your science, your research, My the, science research. the types okay. of things that you do so, in relation to Star Trek. Okay, so I'm a physical therapist with a master's degree in sports and health science. And my main focus is cancer rehabilitation or what's called exercise oncology. So it's exercise for cancer patients. Rehabilitation, habilitation, prehabilitation, and everything that you can do to improve quality of life, function, and even to some point, uh, life expectancy of cancer patients through exercise and physical activity. That's the main thing that I do. I've been working in this field for 10 years. I finished my master's three years ago, and I have enrolled in University of British Columbia for a PhD program starting next year in cancer rehabilitation. So the thing is, I seeing Deep Space Nine, seeing, I, I really related to Kieran Reese because of her temper, which was very unlike mine. I was just really inspired by how strong will she was and so how true to herself and her ideals and how able she was to overcome her own prejudice and hatred of the Kardashians. But anyway, the other, my role models also were Bashir and Jatsia and I always knew that I wanted to work in research and research something that might be of some, some value, of course. And when I got into physical therapy, I often pictured myself that maybe I would be able to go in that field. And I really feel like I've been able to develop that, um, both creating value through what I'm doing and at the same time doing research and applying the scientific method. And because in this field, like in every other field, there are so many preconceived notions about what is the right thing to do and what's the wrong thing to do. And for instance, I, I had cancer myself 13 years ago. That's how I got into this field. When I was studying physical therapy at the moment when I was diagnosed, and I just realized there was so little known at the time about what I should be doing. And my interest in exercise and rehabilitation was, at the time, was only how can I feel better uh, but later, I, I started realizing that there's actually this field of exercise oncology that's really, it's not big, it's, it's, it's relatively new, scientifically speaking, but it's been turning things upside down about what people actually believed about cancer and health. So, for instance, when I started working in this field, I would get clients that were told by their oncologist or their nurses or hematologists that they were not allowed to exercise because they needed to save their energy and they were losing too much weight. And I was just like, but if you actually exercise, you get more energy. And if you do strength training, you maintain your weight rather than lose it. The only way to keep your muscle mass and, and increase it is to exercise. You can't do it by eating alone. So over the years, it went from that, from people or oncologists and, and nurses telling people what they should do and what they should not do, to a point where the oncologists now in Iceland feel that they can trust me with like if I have a different opinion, they will go for my opinion rather than their own about what people should be doing physically to maintain their health. And now in my future studies, I hope to go deeper into this field of, of research of, of to what extent you can actually affect both quality of life and even survival with cancer because it's been proven now. Or it's, it's, there's a quite big consensus that 
in some cases you can actually increase the prognosis of the cancer itself by being physically active. But at the same time, there's an indication that maybe one or two subsets of cancers, really rare types, might actually get worse if they exercise. So it has to be really studied thoroughly what's actually going on. And that's where my science and geek part is really enjoying, you know, to be honest, when I'm studying or working on research or anything, I make like a list of circles, mm-hmm. like an ensign insignia, lieutenant junior grade, lieutenant, lieutenant commander, commander and captain. And I have to work certain hours before getting each grade or each level. <laughs> so that's what motivates me. So I have like many papers at home with just circles, which I've been able to color red when I worked certain hours to earn that uh, rank for what I'm working on. That's hilarious. That's amazing. I'm going to start adopting that as a motivational tool. (laughs) Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, I need to make captain every day. Yes. (laughs) Was there anything special that you would do once you reached that level? Just as a celebration? Usually I would celebrate somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Usually I would tell myself I would buy something Star Trek related. Being in Iceland, it's not easy, <laughs> but um, we, we do have some things. And then also, I have some like long-term things that I want to, if I accomplish them, I, I, I want to buy some really good quality uh, uniforms and make effort to make really good quality uniforms in the future. So I have already planned things that I want to reward myself in the future with when I reach certain goals. I'm sure that list is very long. So going back to um, health, because you're an expert in human health, it seems like that field, as you described, has changed so much in the past decade. It really has. Same with the field that I study, planetary science and astrobiology. Um, But I don't know very much about human health. I mean, Mm. I feel like I should because it relates to me directly. Mm. It relates to everybody. So... You know, I'm fortunate to say that I don't have cancer, Mm. but um, I'm sure that there are still very good reasons for me to exercise anyway. So what are the benefits of exercise? So when it comes to, because like my field is is cancer. So of course people know the general benefits of reducing the likelihood of lifestyle related diseases. But what people don't realize is that it's believed that about one quarter of all cancers is caused by sedentary lifestyle really and being overweight or obese and that's a huge thing so one-fourth of every cancer that's diagnosed but then you have to keep in mind that most cancers happen later in life so it's for people that have been living this kind of way for many many years and usually the the cancers that you develop because of these lifestyles uh, you can never tell that one person got cancer because they were lazy but the data shows that about one-fourth is created by uh, sedentary behavior and, and obesity. Do we understand why that kind of macroscopic behavior influences what cells do at the cellular level? Because cancer is... Yeah, so it's different between cancers because the major cancers, the two major cancers that it shows, seems to be having effect on is colorectal cancers and breast cancers. But not all colorectal cancers and not all breast cancers. So there are some breast cancers that seem to have no connection. There's no correlation between physical activity, health, or any physiological biomarkers that you can check on people. But there seems to be a mixture of things. So many cancers are believed to happen because of what's called multiple hit theory. Hmm. And it's that every cell has weak points and it's being bombarded with all kinds of carcinogenic things, be it radiation, pollution, 
even just your genes might be weak, like sensitive to something, you might have mutations. And if the same cells get hit too many times in many different ways, they might break and turn into cancer cells. And your body is technically always making cancer cells, but the body usually is able to protect you against them. It is believed that exercise and maintaining like a normal weight, if you can say a normal weight, is protective for certain reasons because one of the things it might do is it might help with circulation and help the body to rid of toxins that might build up causing these cancers. It might help also with getting digestion working properly. So toxins that might build up and cause cancer in, in, in the gastrointestinal tract might actually be uh, removed more easily. It also has to do with hormonal things. So for instance, uh, body fat uh, or subcutaneous body fat, which is usually believed to be inert and just energy saved for later, is actually quite bioactive and it can turn quite neutral sex hormones into active bad types of sex hormones, especially for women, and that can develop or help them to develop hormone-related breast cancers. So there are many, many reasons. So it might be hormonal things. Also, exercise reduces the need for the body to produce insulin, and high insulin is associated with many cancers. Also, IGF-1, which is um, it's an insulin-like growth factor that's also related to mainly to dietary habits, but eating a lot of food makes you make much IGF-1. And over time, it's believed to also be carcinogenic in some ways. It's healthy for us. Of course, everything like insulin is healthy for us. But when it is attacking cells all the time, over decades, um, it might work with this multiple hit theory, like your cells might be getting weak from many perspectives. And then at some point you get unlucky. I mean, most cancers are just luck. Uh, so you get unlucky and something gives and the body develops the cancer. Wow. Thank you for diving very deep into the science of why cancer occurs at the cellular level. And it seems like every time you go to the gym, every time you exercise, mm -hmm. you are putting the odds more in your favor yes. of not developing runaway cancers. Exactly. Yeah. And apart from, of course, all the other things like lowering your blood pressure and reducing the likelihood of type 2 1 diabetes heart attack, stroke, and everything else, so. Yeah, what you've said really makes sense to me. I've done some reading on the side about some theories about cancer being a sort of regression to expressing very ancient genes that have to do with single-celled life mm -hmm. forms. So we are multicellular life yeah. forms, but our very deep ancestors were single-celled. Yes forms and mm -hmm. w when you're a single cell life form you kind of just want to eat as much as you can and divide and grow mm -hmm. and multiply as fast as possible exactly but when you are in a multicellular state you kind of have to understand limits you know your limits yes mm -hmm. know exactly. your limits yeah so that you can work in concert with all the other cells yeah. that comprise this larger organism that you're a mm -hmm. part of and i suppose if that larger organism isn't exercising enough, isn't delivering nutrients well enough, or isn't taking away toxins mm -hmm. fast enough. For some reason, there might be a switch that yeah, happens at the molecular switch. level, multiple mm -hmm. hits, you know, something goes mm -hmm. wrong and you start expressing these very ancient genes. Yeah, I, I don't know about these ancient genes, but you, you might be on to something when you're, when you're talking about it, because when it comes to cancer cells, is that they actually are evolved versions of our regular cells. Like they lose their specificity, they lose their uniqueness and become ungeneralized. And they actually get closer to a stem cell, but wow. without a purpose. So they, they go back. And so sometimes 
you can identify a cancer where, from where it comes from if you can find it in a certain organ. And sometimes you can't because you might only be able to find the, the metastasized cancer and not the original mother cells. And if it has devolved enough, you can't tell from which kind of a cell it came in the first place. And the more backwards it is, the more devolved it is, the more aggressive the cancer is. So the more specialized, it's closer to its original cancer cell or its original cell, it's, it's not as aggressive. So the more ancient it becomes, the more dangerous it becomes. It becomes very self-serving. Mm -hmm. it, it, like you said, the, the only purpose is for it to survive and to get energy. And it loses the connection with the whole. You know, what you said about a cancer cell kind of moving backwards to a cell state that has lost its uniqueness. Mm -hmm. Reminded me of the Borg. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, the Borg absolutely. Are... Absolutely, I've never made this connection before. That's amazing. <laughs> I just made it in my head when yes. you said that, and I was like, "Wow." Uh, do you have any immediate thoughts on that? I think it's interesting that you're saying it, um, because that's what they do. They're, their only mission is to, the only thing is that they're trying to sustain themselves and multiply and multiply and multiply. Um, there's no end goal. I mean, I'm not saying that every single living organism has to have an end goal. I mean, I think we as humans, our goal is also just to survive and to be able to live on into the future. But I think this, this method of losing specificity and becoming just, just a drone, so like every cancer cell just has the same goal, just similar to the Borg, like there's no individuality, there's no uniqueness to any one of them. That's very, I like this comparison. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to use it to some of my tricky clients. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite instance of exercise in Star Trek? Or perhaps an instance oh. of exercise that you would like to critique? Oh, uh, the main thing is that I'm really happy when I see people exercising in Star Trek. And I'm really inspired. And to be honest, even though originally I started watching Deep Space Nine and Voyager, what I was really impressed by was when Enterprise came out is that they showed the actors, the line of actors, and I saw these three men that were, or actually four with the captain also, they were all in amazing shapes, and I was not in amazing shape at the time. And I thought, like, I actually felt intimidated, and I thought, I actually thought this, that now they're making Star Trek not for me, but for some fancy people that look really nice. <laughs> and then I thought, well, if I would be in an organization like Starfleet, I would probably not just focus on my mind, I would also focus on my physical like abilities because our body is a limiting factor to a point. I mean, of course, it's not the end all be all to be, to be fit and healthy, but it really, really helps. So uh, that actually inspired me to become more interested in, in that part of my life because I, I always wanted to become a fan who, probably close to what you're doing with your sciences, I wanted to be a fan who somehow, if Starfleet existed, I would be there, even though it would be in a medical-related research, you know, something. So, yeah, you would have a, one of the white uniforms from Discovery. Yes, I would have the white tied uniforms from Discovery. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I was really inspired by these actors. I remember seeing Mayweather was really buff and uh, Chip was really, really buff also and lean. And then also, what's the security guy again? Uh, Reed. Reed, yes. He was also really, really fit. And I was just like... Yeah, I remember feeling this intimidation, but then I thought it's going to be a challenge, not an intimidation. And that got me into, that actually was one of the things that inspired me to go into exercise because I was really anti-exercise before. But favorite scenes of exercise, sorry. I, I like seeing 
of course Burnham and everyone jogging on and, and, and Tilly, everyone but jogging on Discovery, I would really like to see people do some strength exercises because I think strength exercises are really important. And I teach strength training at the University of Iceland to sports science students. So I think that's also really, really important. Um, but of course, every physical activity, especially when it's fun, is really important also. And when you see Miles and O'Brien go play their games in their strange, tight costumes, or when you see Crusher and Troy doing some kind of a Pilates yoga version of whatever that was, and everything they're doing, I just really like seeing these things. And also, one of my favorite Voyager episodes is Learning Curve, when they were running around in increased gravity and doing all kinds of exercise there. I, was, I, I really wanted to be one of those cadets being trained by Tuvok. I, I, really, I really envied them at that time. Very cool. Um, do you want to talk about food synthesizers as well? Or? <laughs> uh, yes, sure. Um, I, I would just say that in general, when it comes to health and health sciences, is that the subject of dietitian like, or, or nutrition, exercise and health and lifestyle related, it's been changing so dramatically over the years. The past five years, ten years, it's just really changed. So I think it's really important when people are writing science fiction, something that's supposed to happen far into the future, that they be careful about what the claims that they make because things might be completely turned upside down in two or three years with some research. So I like it when they show healthy lifestyles, being eating healthy, I also like it when they eat chocolate because I am a chocolate addict myself. <laughs> so I really relate to Troy in that way. Yes. But at the same time, when they in Discovery especially, they've been making some health claims when they, with the food processor or replicators. Yeah. These, not replicators, what are they called? You know, food, I, food synthesizers. I honestly, but I think they actually are replicators because do you remember that scene where Burnham makes her uniform and it's sort of. Oh, yes. It's almost 3D printed, but yes. with a lot of electricity and lightning. Yes. So, so it's, it's like, like an it's early version of, of the replicators, yeah. yes. Anyway, I like that they chose the same colors and the same kind of like stalls as they had in, in, in the original series. But anyway, they make this really interesting comments about health and the health benefits of the food that you're eating. Right, the replicator speaks to you. Yes. It, it, it almost has its own personality. Yes, and it's almost like, you know, for instance, when Tilly was ordering the coffee and the replicator was pointing out how much caffeine it was in it or something or how much he had had to the day. I, I mixed up what her mom was said and the replicator was saying, but she, she just gave it the look, I need it and shush. And I think it's maybe it might be good for us to have something to tell us, you know, we, we need to know what we're doing. But at the same time, things might really change over the years. So, And actually, I liked what they said, the, the comment about the amino acids and green tea, because most people don't realize that they actually have these really good amino acids in them that actually help with the nervous system or something, with relaxation, I don't remember. I'm not really a dietitian, so I don't really know. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is, for instance, at one point, Burnham also makes a comment about the carb, protein, and fat ratio. And that has been shown today that it's only true depending on how you're used to eating. So if you're used to eating high-carb food and your body is really well adjusted to it, genetically and like over the years, just used to handling carbs, then you might have one ratio that might be good for you, and someone else might need a completely different ratio. And for instance, people in Iceland and in the Nordic countries, but especially in Iceland, we've been living here for over a thousand years now. For the first few hundred years, we had almost no carbs in our diet. We had some berries in the, in the autumn, 
then we would eat fish, we would eat lamb, and we would eat a little bit of seaweed, but almost no carbs to speak of. Interesting. So most of the genetic pool that settled here were people that survived in a low-carb environment. And Icelandic people can get fat really easy. We are, at least at one point, we were close to being one of the fattest uh, nations in Europe. And over the years, being healthy has become really popular in Iceland. So it's a big thing for people to be healthy, having a healthy lifestyle and eating healthy. But for me, for instance, maybe lower carb, even though we just had chocolate cakes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, and a cheesecake a la seven of nine so we had like the seven of nine troy moment here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, anyway so i think just any statement that is made might actually date the show but i do appreciate that they're actually making an effort i think that's wonderful and when they're making an effort when it comes to any, anything health related i really feel like my profession and my field is being respected yeah definitely um like science fiction has always been a peering into the future, but Mm -hmm. also at the same time a reflection of the time in which it is written. Exactly. And Star Trek, because it has so much science that it tries to sprinkle into Mm -hmm. the plot, is also a reflection of the science that we know at the time. Exactly. exactly. And also, I I have problems with the science in every Star Trek series that's been made. And I, I usually, I just simply don't mind. I don't mind it's not perfect. And I think the effort that's been made and the message that they're trying to get through is really important. For instance, if we just completely change subject, for instance, with Discovery, is that I really appreciate and think it's an important thing is Lorca as a charismatic person. I really liked him as a character, and, and the actor is amazing. But what I also liked is that I remember when I realized he was from the Mirror Universe, it was when he picked the facer on, on, on Admiral Cornwell. After that, I was convinced. I thought only a person from the mirror universe would sleep with a phaser next to them. But what I like about his character is that we have in, in the modern world, we have really charismatic leaders mm-hmm. that people really, really like. And they can't take their emotions and separate them from the fact that this person is not good for you. Yeah. So that's what I really, this, this gray zone of, of liking someone and that you might appreciate someone for one, one thing, but it doesn't mean that they're good for everything else. So he is a great leader, that's for sure. He's really motivating, he's manipulating. And I actually thought he was a mirror captain that actually was a good person in the mirror universe, not just a self-serving person. I really wanted that to be the yes. case. But then he was just, just like everyone else there. And I, I thought, why not? I mean, I, I liked him, I wanted him to be a good guy, but sometimes people are narcissistic. They will do everything that serves themselves regardless of you. And I think that's really important discussion in, in the modern world. Mm-hmm. So for, for that, I really, really, really respect that they made Lorca the way he, they did. Because he was so strong, he was so likable, but at the same time, not likable. And how he was almost able to manipulate Stan, or not almost, he manipulated him to go to the mirror universe without knowing and all these things. And I just really liked it. Because I think that that's probably one of the most important subjects in the modern world is the subject of why are we following certain leaders? Are they good for us? They might have something to themselves. They might be creating value at some point, like winning the war with, with the Klingons. But at the same time, uh, who was it who mentioned it, that it's a losing battle if you already, if you already stop fighting for what you are? Feels like a Burnham quote. Is this how Starfleet wins the war? Genocide. You want to do this here? Fine. Terms of atrocity are convenient after the fact. 
the Klingons are on the verge of wiping out the Federation. Yes, but ask yourself, why did you put this mission in the hands of a Terran and why the secrecy? It's because you know it's not who we are. It very soon will be. We do not have the luxury of principles. That is all we have, Admiral. A year ago, I stood alone. I believed that our survival was more important than our principles. I was wrong. Do we need a mutiny today to prove who we are? I really appreciated that this is what they're taking to it. Because of course the writers of Discovery, even though they make really great efforts about being really scientific about Discovery and making these beautiful binary stars and all kind of planets like this exotic, like Sahia, that looked mm -hmm. really strange. And I don't know if it's been discussed on your yes, podcast already, yeah. the look of Sahia. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I, I look forward to hearing it <laughs> because I, I'm, almost, I'm only halfway through your, your podcast and I started listening three weeks ago <laughs> uh, before I even knew you were coming to Iceland. So I'm really, really, yeah, really happy. Of that but I think they're doing really interesting things nothing is perfect and we have a saying in Icelandic I think you probably have a similar saying in English that I don't know of but everything can be faulted everything you can take everything every book every speech every action done and fault it and if you really make the effort you will really make things look bad so I think what they're actually trying to do about having this really horrible leader and then completely changing it with having Pike, this like ideal leader, as a comparison in season two, I don't think it was a chance that they did this. I think they probably had this in mind originally that they were going to have someone amazing to show the comparison of these two. And sometimes that what you need is that you have to see someone actually being really sincere, really honest, really uh, humble, like he was. He was willing to like take advice. He was willing to challenge people and at the same time change his mind. So I thought it was beautiful, like seeing season one and season two together. I think it's a beautiful overarching story, even though it's different chapters of this story of discovery. And now they have this season three happening far into the future. And I wasn't too happy about it. I, I really liked the, the era they were in, but I somehow trust the writers that they know what they're doing. And it is science fiction. So if they eventually dig themselves into a hole and can't get out, they can always accidentally mysteriously go back into a time period that actually suits them. Yeah. And yeah. they can go on from there. Right. It's Star Trek. It's There's Star Trek. always a reset button. Yes. And now we have a spore drive. Yes. So we can do anything. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, but I love that analysis that you just went through about Lorca being a reflection of our time yeah. and so many countries around the world now. It's in Iceland also. We have the same, really? we've had the same problems with populist leaders that really... You know, we, we say it, we, pulling someone on, on the donkey's ear because you're being idiot enough to believe someone. And we, had, we have and we have had people in the, in, in, in the government here that made outrageous claims about what they were going to promise to do for us. And I would say most sane people didn't buy into it, but many people bought into it because the person seemed sincere and charismatic and nice and unfortunately got us into some troubles. 
And then at the same time, these same people have also become known to be really xenophobic, extremely xenophobic, and doing everything they can to cause disunity amongst people, so which yeah. I really don't like. Because, like I said, everyone can be faulted. And if you really try, you can find things to divide us. I mean, we right. could actually do it right now. We could find everything that we don't have in common mm -hmm. and focus on it. And things that we really passionately disagree about and really could spend the entire podcast talking about those things. Yeah. But where would it get us? Right. And Star Trek has always been about seeing differences yes. and acknowledging them and coming to cherish them. Exactly. So um, may we all have the wisdom to mm -hmm. see our respective Lorcas for what yes. they are and to vote and elect yes. our pikes yes, exactly. <laughs> into power. Yes, yes. And, and, and then it's a, it's a big question who's going to be the third captain of Discovery. Mm, yes, yes. And uh, that I eagerly await Me, to I, see. I do too. <laughs> so that was my conversation with Hawker, a guy I had literally just met. But through Star Trek and through science, we found so much in common despite the fact that we had grown up in completely different corners of the world, and until a few hours ago, I didn't even know that he existed. But these things that bond us, our curiosity and our passions, made it just such an amazing time. And I want to thank him once again for reaching out to me and asking if I wanted to meet up, just out of the blue. Well, that's it for episode 83 of Strange New Worlds. But before we go, there is just one last thing. In the end, because you do it with everyone else from abroad, you ask them how to say... Yes, how do, how do you say... Sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, thank you for reminding me. That's because it's so fresh. I've been listening to all yeah, of this, that's like, right, yeah. like two or three a day almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you probably heard my one from Estonia not too yes. long ago. Yeah. Okay, so how do you say see you out there in Icelandic? Probably the most accurate is Sjáumstarnauti. Okay, you're going to have to say that slower for me. Sjáumst. Sjáumst. Þarna. Þarna. Úti. Úti. Sjáumst means let's see each other. Þarna means there. And úti is out. Sjáumst. Þarna. Úti. Úti. Sjáumst þarna úti. Sjáumst þarna úti. Some, yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> but but there might be different ways of saying it, but this is one of one, one way. And this is the closest one to, to the English one. Wonderful. It's been my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you.